This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Barry Cohen. He's the managing partner of Time Concepts LLC up just a little bit north of San Francisco here in California. Barry, welcome. Hey, thank you very much, Ariel. A pleasure to be with you. I remember one of our first adventures, maybe not the first, but we, this is when you were at Luminox and we were at the Infineon Raceway in Sonoma. Um, and we, you put me in, a, in an Indy car. There was one of those like tandem Indy cars. Um, I forgot the name of that driver you guys were working with. He was such a nice guy. And I put the helmet on and you were there and the whole deal. And this was sort of back in a very important time where people like you realized that the media that spoke about watches had to live the lifestyle, had to understand what the watch was meant for and who. And I guess my first sort of question is, in your career selling watches that will, and designing watches, where did you sort of understand the media side of it? Where did you pick that part up? Well, really, I sort of stumbled into it. By the way, that racer was Tony Kanaan that you referenced. Tony, that's right. Super cool guy. Yeah, very sweet. A sweetheart. A sweetheart. I, I sort of stumbled into it as something that became necessary to be able to inform people about watches we had in the hope that it would interest them. So they'd come and purchase them. It's, uh, it just, I don't want to use the word necessary evil because I don't think it's an evil, but it's a necessity to get that, that information into consumers' minds in the hope you can lure them to your product. I guess the point I'm trying to bring is that you recognize very early on that experience both in how you learn about the watch and where you buy the watch, is such an important part. And the Europeans and the Japanese, for the most part, who, who make most of the watches that we uh, encounter, are mostly focused on the product. They seem to not focus on that thing. And I've always felt that Americans especially have done such a good job, at least historically, of bringing watches into the American market because they build experience around it. And in, and in Europe, for example, there is, there is no fun experience around buying the watch, is there? I'm not. I'm not really keen uh, or, or keenly aware of how that's done in the other markets. But in our market, <laughs> in our market, we like to have uh, experience be part of. It. There's no question about that, and, and that usually comes with tying to individuals in given sectors that would have an appreciation for the product that we create. You were responsible for Luminox being in sharper image, weren't you? I was. I got very lucky there. I want to talk about the story because I remember growing up here in Los Angeles, go into various shopping malls and the sharper image, which I think may still exist in catalog form. I'm not sure, but it was a, you know, it was a shop that was in many, many malls throughout America, possibly other parts of the world. It was what they call a concept store. And it had a variety of products. All were supposed to be new and high technology and cool and interesting. They didn't have a lot of watches, but they had Luminox watches. And I remember there was these, these cases in there and there was some imagery. You had the the, the Navy SEALs logo and a couple of other sort of like suggestive pieces of illustration to recommend, you know, that this was a, you know, professional military watch and that you too could wear what the Navy SEALs were ostensibly wearing and things like that. And I was a kid at the time and I was not into watches, but I remember that watch in that store with that display left such, such an impact on me. And and to this day, I think about it. And I don't really have a lot of other watch memories from that age. You know, how many other people go to you with that story and, and talk a little bit more about how that all came together? Uh, not, it's interesting that it had such an impact on you. I'm glad. Um, it, there was a sequence there. You know, when I started Luminox, it was, it was 1989. And I had been in the watch business prior to that. I'll jump to Sharper Image in just a second. I had been in the watch business prior with, uh, I, I entered the world at the at the time of the advent of fashion watches. And of course that was Swatch, Guess and Fossil. And so I, I had some uh, fashion watch brand. I had a Sterling watch brand. And even when I had a good looking fat, I had, a, I had a brand at one point that was very much uh, the look of some of the things you've seen today, like MVMT and so forth, very clean. And we, I was able to get it placed in a number of department stores, but what ended up happening is 
and this is the nature of sourcing goods out of Asia, is that other people would come with the same look and they'd undercut you in price or they'd offer more money to the stores. And uh, we had gained entree into stores, but ultimately, if you don't have a really solid relationship with the buyers, and I was working around the country, you know, how long is the friendship going to last if someone's undercutting you? So I realized we needed one of two things. We needed either a uh, very strong designer name, let's take hyperbole, say Ralph Lauren, it didn't exist in watches at the time, uh, so that if someone copied it, they could, but it still wouldn't be Ralph Lauren. But unfortunately, I had no connection to such people. So the alternative was to seek a technology. And when I caught wind of this self-powered illumination uh, and established a relationship with the physicist firm that was producing it, uh, the thinking was, if I put this into watches, I could have a sustainable business. I'm, I'm going to jump now to how that brought us to Navy SEALs. Um, there was a research officer who was seeking that illumination to put it into watches for purchase for SEALs. We happened, or he happened upon us at an outdoor retailer show and sat down and talked together. He said, hey, you put this into a watch for us, make us a dive watch and we'll buy some and you can tell the world. And that's how that started. And that was the appeal to Sharper Image. So now I get you to Sharper Image. Uh, the fact that we were working with uh, the SEAL teams at that point um, had an appeal to management at the Sharper Image. And it was initially a buyer and then a DM and a GM. And ultimately, I had the good fortune of uh, establishing a rapport with the CEO and founder, which is Richard Tallheimer. And he said to me at the time, let's give this a shot and let's see how high is up. And to, to address some of what you said, uh, at the time, they had they grew to about 180 stores for about a $750 million company. And we were in all of the stores. So you, like hopefully others, found us there, and, and, and that's how the brand got started. But it was twofold in terms of creating exposure. And if I'm, if I'm carrying on too long, stop me. But, but this No, is, this is great. I have so many questions, but this is a great okay. story. Please continue. All right. So, so we, we were found by Sharper Image. You know, not exactly found. I was banging on the door. But uh, we were found by Cabela's, and that was at a shot show. Um, and the buyer there came to us and talked to us and said, you know, we're very familiar with this technology because it's in the gun sites. Cabela's touts itself as the world's foremost outfitter. So that's hunting and fishing type type consumers. And he said, we, we're familiar with it. Those sites are uh, that that illumination is in gun sites. So you guys have it in a watch. You've got the added cachet of uh, a little tie to the Navy SEALs. So we'd like to get going with this. And, and what ended up happening uh, between the, you got to remember that was the heyday of the mail order catalog world, which of course is not the same today. The internet right, right. replaced a lot of things. So both of those companies at that time were producing 72 million catalogs a year. And because we were in both, uh, in all stores and in catalog, we were able to get 144 million exposures for about five to six years running. And really that's what established Luminox. No question in, in my mind. Absolutely. But, and, and, you know, you mentioned uh, the Sharper Image. They started by uh, referencing it in their catalog and in the store as the Navy SEAL watch. But I impressed upon them, listen, we're trying to build a brand here. And you can't just call us the Navy SEAL watch. We're building a brand. You need to call us Luminox. Right, and the right. Navy SEAL aspect takes a back seat to that. And they agreed. And that's what helped build that brand. Okay, so let's back up here because there's so much to unpack. And I do think that your story about Luminox and what came of it, you, you know, we'll get to that, but you, you sold it to the Swiss, which is, I think, a very um, uncommon thing to do, but that was awesome of you. You, we're going to, I want to talk about the Tritium for a second, uh, because right now there's a lot of sport watches out there that include Tritium gas tube illumination. Uh, uh, Tracer is, you know, the in-house brand from, uh, you know, the company that you bought the tubes from originally, uh, MB Microtech. And you even have Ball, you know, which is a higher end brand. And it's, you know, there's there's a lot of companies now uh, that have Marathon, of course, uh, the you know military watch supplier out of Canada, uh, and many other watches. But you started this, right? This was, I think, this was a technology in gun sites, I believe, yeah. early on. You made the, the the connection. You said this technology needs to be in watches. Again, I I, I want to make sure is was you started this. Well. What, what I would tell you is this, were, were there a couple of watch companies or 
watches that were using the technology prior to the advent of Luminox? Yes. Okay. Uh, one of them was Marathon that you mentioned. And there was another one up out of New England as well. But they were doing this really for, for the military and not for the consumer per se. I see. Today, of I course, see. you know, I see Marathon is pursuing consumers and that's fine. There, there's nothing wrong with that company. They were not back then at all. No, they were not. And and so, again, because of the reasoning I described earlier to try to have something uh, that would enable us to sustain a brand. And what it was was this enabling technology that allowed for time at a glance, no matter what the light condition, including complete darkness. I mean, to me, this just made sense. You know, we live in a world that has 24 hours and not all of them have light. So. I thought, you know, this this just seems logical. Why wouldn't we do this? And I guess the little feather in my cap, uh, which which I guess I'm pretty proud of, actually, is that I'm, I am the guy, I guess, that brought this technology to the consumers en masse. And uh, I'm proud of it, proud of what we accomplished. Yeah, so I, I mean, this industry is made up of people who have the right idea in the right place at the right time. A lot of it is luck, but as you said, it requires a lot of persistence and trying over and over and over again until you, you know, you hit that 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 popularity, um, you know, execution that, that that works so well. But you know, you were lucky enough to say this is the technology that the consumers would buy a lot. It's only being used for special purposes. I mean, Marathon, for example, you know, you mentioned it could not be purchased by consumers. If you were not in the military at the time, you weren't getting one of these. And you were like, why does this technology only exist right now for this specialized professional audience? I think the rank and file consumer will want to get one. And you were the first to do that. You were very fortunate. You had to have you know, a lot of intelligence to recognize that there would be appeal, right? Like that's a necessary part of it. It's not like you were just standing in the right space. But you happened to to find something that that would later be very trendy. You were lucky enough to connect with the right retail partner, right? If it was just you selling Luminox watches, there's a good chance that, you know, you'd have an okay business, but it would never be as big as it was. But it's that trifecta of, you know, intelligent marketer, great manufacturing product, and a distributor that knows how to reach consumers. And I continue to tell the industry, you still need this trifecta. It still has to have all three of these things at minimum to make it big. Would you agree or disagree? Uh, well, obviously our world has changed dramatically, but in principle, I definitely agree. You can't, it's hard to do it on your own, although, as you know, retail is the dynamics of retail have changed dramatically. And today there's been a push to direct to consumer. And I would say the pandemic probably accelerated that. So I, I would imagine brands can come out and try to establish themselves direct to consumer without the aid of that third party. But having third party certainly helps because they have their reach. Well, I guess the third party these days is the media partners, right? Because you sell yourself, anybody can direct consumer attention to a checkout page, right? So Yeah, but I, I actually even meant getting still, I still believe retailers can help because a given retailer has its clientele. Yes. So if you can be in that retailer as well, you extend your reach by virtue of leveraging their reach. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just sort of trying to show everyone how your wonderful story is a fantastic example of the necessary elements that need to be there to achieve success. And a lot of it is coming to market with an idea at a time when no one else has. You know, there's a this this industry still rewards firsts a lot, right? You don't always continue momentum as the first, but the first to do something in the watch industry tends to be a good idea. And so the industry is always talking about innovation all day long, innovation, innovation, innovation. What what Barry did by identifying that tritium gas tubes were going to be appealing to consumers, that's innovation. You know, getting getting trendy with the color green, that's not innovation. <laughs> that color's not new, okay? It's been there since the beginning of colors. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't, I, I want people who are the entrepreneurs right now that are, of course, listeners to Superlative and hopefully disciples of people like like Barry will identify that innovation does, in fact, mean bringing the consumers something they will love, but ten minutes ago had no idea they would want. 
Being able to say, as a consumer, this would be cool is such an important thing. And I think that this industry and many others going up to Hollywood movies are still so paralyzed by the idea of saying, we cannot make things unless consumers have already voiced interest in it. We want to take no risks on things that might be new. Yet that is exactly the opposite of how success has come in the watch industry in the past. It's been bringing something new that didn't have a lot of testing and just said, I, as a consumer myself, believe that other people like me might want this. And that requires some confidence. And you're not going to get a bunch of spreadsheets that are going to show you that's going to be you know, successful. It just requires risk-taking. Well, therein lies our present dilemma then with the advent of our new brand in that the technology is not new. So how do we how do we get consumers to recognize what we're doing today? And we'll, we'll discuss that whenever you're ready. But uh, I guess that that's part of our current dilemma. Well, that's okay. That's another that's another story. Challenge, not dilemma. Challenge would be the appropriate word. Well, I mean, brand building and, and awareness growth is always a challenge, no matter you know who you are. But I want to I want to sort of close out the Luminox um, story. So you started Luminox. And I guess, you know, make a long story short, you, you, you no longer are involved with it because you, you know, you sold it and you sold it to the Swiss. How, how common is it? It's happened before, you know, they've bought in a, a lot of American brands, you know, like Hamilton and stuff like that. But how common is it that these days the Swiss buy an American watch brand? Well, I can't speak to how common or uncommon it is. I can tell you that I started it and, and asked to bring in a, a friend who was based on the East Coast. I was based on the West Coast. I brought in a friend. His name was Rich Timbo. And we built Luminox together for 16 years. At the 16-year mark, he was a little further ahead of me in life. His kids had gone through school. He wanted to travel the world. So he wanted to exit the business and said, why don't you find someone to uh, buy my shares? So I, I found a couple of guys in Switzerland to do that and uh, stayed on with it for 10 years. But I, I think I would tell you this. We had philosophical differences. And so I, I believe they were thrilled to buy my shares because we didn't necessarily see eye to eye on some things. So, and, and because of that, I was actually relatively happy to move on. Although that was not an easy decision because in my life, uh, I have a son, I have a daughter, and I had a watch, and I had to actually give up one of my kids. But that's okay. Um, that was part of uh, the growth process in life. Well, when you're an entrepreneur, your business is like a child for every entrepreneurial endeavor. You know, that's just that's the way it is. You have to treat it like a child. You have to care about it. You want, you need to want what's best for it. And if you exploit it, you know, and, and we we see a lot of that. We see the people who in this space have cared about their brands, and those who have had very little hesitation to exploit them. And we see those that exploit it get a lot of, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know that there's a lot of commercial success. There seems to be short-term gain, but in the long term, it seems that people that really care about their brands are the ones that win, right? Uh, I sure hope so, because I care like crazy about what we're doing now. Now, let's let's go back to the to how you got in the watch industry because I think that in America it's a lot harder to jump into the watch industry. You know, in Switzerland you still have these stories. My family was in it. Um, I, I, you know, the, the watch brand is 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 within driving distance of me, and you know, you see it around town, friends and family. But in America, the people that get into wa the watch industry are either intentionally pursuing it or kind of stumble upon it. Now, when you got into it, watches were much bigger from a retail perspective in America. You know, people still needed them. It was a utilitarian object. But I always like to have people in your position explain how did they get in the industry and why did they stay in the industry? Well, I when I came out of college, I went to work for a, a General Mills-owned company called Monet Jewelry, which okay. at, at the time, uh, it's, it was the premier costume jewelry company in America that occupied just about 50% uh, of most department store costume jewelry departments. Uh, it was there that uh, a gentleman named Mickey Callanan <clears throat> was my boss, and I would say that he was a mentor of sorts, and that he kind of taught me business. And Mickey went on to found guest watches, and you know the story there. Uh, but 
after uh, after about six years with the company, I moved on and became an independent rep. And so I was repping a number of different uh, accessories, and I mean a wide array, from socks to umbrellas to costume jewelry to sterling to uh, fashion watches to sterling watches to just a, a sunglasses. I was the first uh, sales manager at Costa Del Mar Sunglasses, for example. So I was I was in a lot of things. And, and had designer sunglasses. But ultimately, it started to whittle down to watches and sunglasses, which on a commission basis made sense because the lion's share of sunglasses sell in the first half of the year, and the lion's share of watches were selling in the second half of the year. So I was able to uh, stabilize my commissions throughout a year. But I started to just develop a passion for watches. And this actually goes back to when I was 10. My parents gave me my first Timex watch and, you know, I was a 10 year old kid that was walking around wearing a watch at the age of 10. And none of my buddies were wearing a watch, but I was. And when we went on a cruise when I was 13, uh, they bought me a Swiss chronograph and I started wearing this Swiss chronograph that I absolutely loved. Uh, so I guess that's where the notion uh, or the passion for watches began. Um, and as time passed and I was uh, diving more and more into watches and, and, and began this watch concept with the tritium illumination, I no longer needed the sunglasses and I focused all of my efforts on that. That's, that's kind of how it happened, uh, not because I had ancestors in the watch business. But you agree that it's sort of a, um, a less than direct route to getting into the watch industry in America. Like these days, if somebody from your town came to you and said, hey, Barry, um, watches are so great. I'm so impressed by what you did. I know the industry is different today. How do you recommend I get into it? What would you What would you give as advice to a young person today that genuinely wants to get into the space? I would think, I would think that for the most part, it's tougher and easier at the same time. And I'll explain why. With the advent of the internet, we've seen countless, I'll call them mom and pops, or people that think, hey, I could just buy that overseas. I could run it out of my garage. I'm in the watch business. And they're in the, and they're, I guess, technically in the watch business. So in that sense, there's a heck of a lot more competition out there. And, and therefore, it might be considered more difficult because there's a lot of competition. Um, so I don't know that I would advise it to somebody uh, because of that. But yet I'm still I'm still planning to be deeply immersed in it no matter what. But but it is now, you know, it's part of my it's part of who I am at this point. I've been doing it since 1983. I'm not about to quit. Okay, so that's an interesting inherent contradiction. And I and I want to explore that because I think that it is very common in enthusiast sort of pursuits like we have. A you tell a young person that this is a hard is industry. It's not maybe what it, like it used to be. And to be successful, you got to try really hard and most fail, which is like many industries. But at the same time, you say, despite all the things that I find super annoying, I'm quite addicted to it. <laughs> I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And I continue to sort of pursue these dreams much like I did as a, as, as a younger man. So What's that? What's that thrill for you in it? I mean, I'm not, it's not a bad thing. I have it as well. I mean, this industry is is littered. I just want to say this last thing: littered by very smart people who probably should have done other things. Yet, through some type of magnetic, you know, appeal, the watch industry has held all these smart guys that should maybe should have been doing some other stuff with their life, right? Well, I suppose. I mean, if 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 I really look back at my life, I often think I should have been an architect because I have an enormous passion for uh, home design, modernism, and I still get four or five design or architecture magazines a month just because cool. of the passion. In fact, I'm I building another house right now and designing oh. house right now. But And that's my, the second house I will have designed and built. But but I didn't do that, and it just I just sort of fell into what I did, and bit by bit I, it became a passion. And the reason I am doing it again is because I guess what, you know, the new brand that we're launching, I'm calling the No Excuses, No Compromises brand. And that brand name is ProTech, and we could talk about that whenever you'd like to. But I want to, you know, I'm not a young kid anymore. I told you I started in watches sometime around 83, 84. So um, I just kind of want to end my career on a really positive note, making watches exactly how I want them to be made. 
because it's what I love. And I hope that what I love and what I design will resonate with enough consumers out there that it becomes a viable business. I'm so glad that you responded that way because it sort of brought up a concept that I think is important in this space. And what you're describing, and correct me if you feel I'm wrong, is that you like to build things. You like to build things from the ground up. You like to examine the details. You like to see how it works when it's done. You you like to think about how you might make it better next time. Maybe a different version of you would have built, you know, physical machines and things like that. But a brand like a house, like a a piece of machinery uh, does need a lot of the same mentality to build it. And And I believe that you and many other people in the space get a real enjoyment of seeing the end product of something that they actually built. Yeah, I mean, it's very much so that way for me. And I'm, uh, you know, in life, there's some comments you hear and some of them stick with you. Back when I was independent repping, I was also repping clothing for a guy. And he had two phrases. And I swear, I wish I could remember the other one because they were both pearls. But the one I do remember was good enough never is. Oh, nice. And it really isn't because you can always improve what you're doing. And I tend to be a stickler on the details of design and I pour over it like crazy until I'm truly satisfied. Um, and some might complain that I take too long to get it accomplished, but, but if in the end it's done the way I feel is, I'll use the word perfect. I mean, I don't know if it is perfect, but if, but if it's done the way I really want it to be, then I'm excited. And that's a luxury, right? Being able to build something and setting your own deadlines and doing it your way is a luxury. And and I, like you and many other people out there, specialists listening to the show, probably have a soft spot for building things. And if you've ever been part of a building team, you recognize you're limited by so many things. Budget, personalities, philosophy, time is a big one. It is an absolute luxury to find projects that you can sink in as much time and resources as you want to get the end result. And we see a class a person, both male and female, who throughout their life continue to seek more and more freedom in building what they want. And when they're given that freedom, they often create wonderful things. And as consumers, we love to buy the result of that, right? When someone's like, I spent 10 years making this and I I spared no expense and I engineered every part of it. We are just so romanced by those stories. And I think that accounts for a a huge percentage of the, the appeal that, that watches have, both high-end and low-end. How would you respond to all that? I completely agree. <laughs> I mean, I'm in 100% agreement. And, you know, I, I've never had, and I'll touch on the word luxury in a minute, but I, I've never had the chance of really working in the luxury watch space. Uh, it hasn't been, first of all, it's, it's controlled by conglomerates. Uh, it's, it's, I believe it's corporate, which is uh, pretty much like when I was with General the General Mills uh uh, company Monet, and when I left that company and uh, experienced uh, kind of working for myself, I, I realized I'm not a corporate guy, and so I don't want to dive into that that pond. I'd rather do things my own way. But when you talk about luxury as well, and this is something another another pearl that I once heard, which I, I agree with, is uh, I'm very fortunate that I've reached a station in life where I have the luxury of working with whom I'd like to work and I don't need to work with people I'd rather not work with. That is a luxury as well. I I hear you entirely. Now let's talk about some of the designs that you were responsible for or, or, you know, came up with entirely that you're sort of the most proud of. There's gotta be some classics there that you feel just really did it right. Um, and, you know, these aren't necessarily a particular price point or piece of functionality, but just the ones that Barry was really proud of. And then, you know, maybe why you're so proud of it. Well, the one that sticks in my, again, I, I guess you're referring to some of the Luminox product. Yeah, Luminox product, honestly, it's, it's, I know you will be designing more watches moving forward, but just, yeah. you know, right now in reverse to the 80s, you know, what are the, what are the hits as far as you're concerned? All right. Now, first of all, the very nature of this is highly subjective. I might love this, and Joe or John or Jimmy might not love it. They have your opinion is what I want. Your opinion. The best product, the product I was most pleased with that we did at Luminox was uh, called the Color Mark Collection, and I would I would say that 
it's interesting because, you know, like you mentioned, I was the first one to really take take this tritium category and explode it en masse for consumers outside of military. But shortly thereafter, we saw dozens and dozens of companies try to either try to or actually jump into that space. So I take some pride in the fact that I did something that others followed. The color mark is sort of similar because when I came up with that idea, believe it or not, I came up with it in a dream. I kid you not. One night I'm just sleeping and I'm dreaming and I said, but what if we made all the markings on the watch in colors and had different colors to do it? And I got up out of bed and I made a note on, the, on a notepad so that I wouldn't forget in the morning because that can happen in dreams. And the next day I reached out to the designer with whom I'd been working for years and expressed what I wanted to do. And I'm, again, kind of proud that over the next several years, I saw a lot of other watch brands start to do it. So I felt like, wow, you know, great that people followed, but that was the series that I probably liked the best of anything that we ever did at Luminox. But I would tell you this, the products that we're doing right now, I like way better and not because I'm doing them right now, but because I love them. Well, let, let's let's talk about the color thing for a second because I think that what you're demonstrating was a degree of prescience there, where you identified that bright colors on tool watches would be a thing, and 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 that was that was novel at the time. I remember when those came out. I liked them as well because first, again, the core product was a masculine tool watch, kind of no nonsense. This is sort of the the core the core Luminox look. But then, like you said, you took the hour markers and the sort of loom uh, ostensibly, and you did it in, you know, green and red and yellow and not by today's standards, quite conservative, actually. But then <clears throat> it was not always common to have, you know, electric green on, on, on a military watch like that. And because people like color, I think it did well. You just sort of recognized something, again, before many others did, that bright colors had this sort of untapped fashion potential and this untapped demand, if it's on an otherwise sensible, conservative, masculine thing? Well, I, I couldn't tell you that I was, uh, I was of the belief that it would become something that others might do. I just thought, I love this idea, so let's do it. <laughs> it was really- Yeah, no, that, but that's how it is. I kind of do what I like, and I hope that others will. Now, you- talk about that easily, but I think that that's a very interesting element in this industry, or most people in this industry, the vast majority do not do what they like. They feel as though they need what they call market validation. Is it selling? Are other people who may have done more research uh, doing it, or have they come to the same conclusions? They are so fearful of just doing what they like, and they're fearful of failure which again, you need to do. Like if you, if you don't fail, you're not going to ever have a hit. So you have to fail a bunch of times. But the idea is that you have something in your personality which allows you not to have to look to the sides. Maybe it's where you grew up. I'm similar to you. I don't need the validation. But it seems like most people in this industry, especially the Swiss, need that, that sideways validation. So what advice would you give to people who need that sideways validation to just go with your own gut instinct? Well, there I would tell you, Ariel, it depends on the human being. If somebody really needs that and that's the way they they find comfort, then that's what they should do. I I I don't. It, for me, everything is uh, is sort of visceral. I either, I feel it if it feels right to me, and I and I play around with some design, and it starts it starts to. I've got a graphic designer friend, uh, Frank Doyle, who who's done some graphic work for me with T-shirts or whatever. And as he's drawing, his words will be, "Oh, it's starting to feel like something." That's kind of how I feel the same way. It's starting to feel like something. And if it does, I continue down that road. If it doesn't, I move to a new road. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. 
The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Where in your past do you think you picked up an eye for the aesthetic, right? Because there are people that legitimately don't know the difference between ugly and not ugly. And when you design things, you also have to have an eye for the aesthetic. Was it in your upbringing? Was there a particular job And it was when you were working in jewelry? How'd you pick it up? Not a, it was none of that. I believe it's entirely innate. I think some people, you know, everybody, it's like, it's like when you have kids, right? When you have kids, every kid's get, dealt a different hand. Some will have a native, uh, I mean, my son, for example, he's highly analytical. He's, uh, he, he's not design oriented. My daughter is a graphics person. She's very much into art and design and, and each kid gets a different hand. Interesting. And I think it's a matter of what your innate ability is, what, what feels right to you. And for me, I, I could tell you, for example, I still, <laughs> this is crazy. I still have an article about a brownstone in New York. From when I was going to PS6 on 81st in Madison, and I used to walk past this brownstone, and it it was not a brownstone. It was nested nestled amongst a number of brownstones on the Mideast and Lower East Side. And there are all these conservative buildings, and there was this beautiful modern building with some steel extruding and some clean lines and big sheets of glass. And then I saw it in a in a design magazine. I still have that article. That's like, what, 60 years old, 50-something years old. But that's the first thing that made me think, I love design. I love architecture. I love home design. And, And for me, lines have to line up. Things can't be haphazard. It, it creates uh, dissonance in my mind. It, it's it's discordant. It doesn't work for me. Things, the lines have to work. And and so I guess I translated that over to watches. No, it's, it's fine. I think it's important for me to talk about the personality traits that lend themselves to success in this industry. As part of the larger goal I have of the superlative series, it's to talk to individuals like yourself who have done successful things and try to examine your personality because you're right. People need to do what they're good at. And there are people I see who really want to do something in sort of a role like you have, but don't have the eye eye for design and seem to like get frustrated. Like, oh, why is my brand not doing well? Like, well, no one likes the way it looks and people buy watches primarily because of the way they look. Now, the mark watches aren't marketed that way, which I, which is hilarious. But people buy watches because of how they look. Do you agree or disagree? I definitely agree. I agree with that about any product. The very first thing about any product, I don't care what the product is, is the outlook of the product. Does it connect with you? Does it pull you? But I don't necessarily believe that the consumer, the general consumer, overtly says, "Oh, that all works together." It's it's working on them on their subconscious. And if it feels right, they'll go for it. Interestingly, just last week, I saw a new watch design that had a, uh, a watch case that had a lot of cuts and angles and facets to it. And I thought that's interesting, primarily uh, because uh, one of the new series we just launched, I, I am referring to the di- design language as facets. So it's kind of in that direction. And these guys were going in the same direction. Uh, but yet they had a bracelet attached to it that was a standard round shaped bracelet, which really could have been off a shelf. I looked at that and I said, this doesn't go at all. They did a nice job on this case, but this bracelet doesn't fit it at all. And I shared it with the designer with whom I've been working. I've known him since 1993, a wonderful man, we're good friends. And I shared the picture with him and I said, take a look at this. They did a great job on the case, but look at that bracelet. And his response was, you see exactly what I see. It's not a complete design. And consistency as well as, you know, cohesion and being um, coherent. uh, These are all important things that we look at. And people like you and me have had to sort of study design because it's been part of the the commercial reality of what we do. Um, But you're right. Consumers tend to approach it in a sort of very innate way. They don't know how to identify what they're feeling or why. They don't need to, they don't know to be like, oh, the symmetry is off. Like they don't get these things. But there is a science 
in a lot of ways to beauty. There are rules. And if you understand those rules, you can make things that are more often than not, you know, pretty nice to look at. Now, let's talk about after the Luminox years. You just couldn't get out of watches. <laughs> you start a couple of little brands here and there. No, nothing super ambitious, but interesting stuff. What, what did you want to do at the time? And then how has that evolved to, until right now with your current uh, wristwatch ventures? All right. Well, I had a separate business called Time Concepts that was started in 2007. And I started that business because invariably I would hear from people, hey, you know watches, would make one for me, for my store, for my brand. And I needed a platform on which to work to do that. So I think aptly named Time Concepts, Concepts and Watches. And we started it that way. And over the years, we have done watch development for a litany of both retailers and brands, whether it was Orvis or Eddie Bauer or some stuff for uh, Cabela's, uh, uh, some design development for 511s. Uh, it's about 25 different companies did stuff for the Special Olympics, for BMW at one point, for just a lot of different people. I can't even remember all the brands. But as we were doing this, I realized, you know, this is not a great business model because I'm dependent on other people to say, I want to buy more of that. Well, what if they don't? So, so I decided uh, that I should layer some things onto this platform that we actually possessed. And there's a, a celebrity chef around here. His name is Tyler Florence, who's on the Food Network. And he had a couple of my Luminox watches. He called me up one day and he said, hey, you got to see this watch I got. All right. He goes, meet me for coffee. So I meet him for coffee. He's wearing a, a beautiful Top Gun IWC because he has money and taste. But... Uh, <laughs> But, but he pulls out of his pocket a 1930s Gruen military watch. And he's got a big smile on his face. He says, what do you think? I said, I think it's super cool. I love it. But the watch head is the size of a U.S. quarter. And this is during the big watch days. And I said, nobody's going to buy that. And he said, I know. But So I'm not taking credit. It was his idea. He said, I know. But there's a void in the industry doing vintage design timepieces made for today. I said, ah, pretty interesting. So I kind of kept an eye on the market and realized he was right. And we started to develop a brand. The name of the brand is Santo, as Z-A-N-T-O, the C is silent. Uh, can be seen at santotime.com if anyone wants. We started to develop a, a brand there and, and just kept doing different models that had vintage design and inspiration with, of course, uh, today's movement. So you had... Uh, you had quartz technology that didn't exist in the 30s or 20s or 40s, and you, and even some automatics. So that's that brand. Then the Hawaiian Lifeguard Association approached me, and they said, hey, you know watches, once again, would you make one for me? And I said, well, what do you have in mind? And they gave me some some ideas, and I said, sure, I'll do that for you. Now, I know I know Hawaii. My wife's Hawaiian. I've been to Hawaii a lot of a lot. And I know the nature of the surf there. I mean, there's a reason they have so many big wave surf contests there. Uh, and it's powerful. So you got to make sure that you make a really tight watch to handle that. And so I went to a factory that uh, it, the entire facility is a dust-free temperature and humidity control clean room so that I could get excellence. And that became sort of our mandate. If we're not making superior quality, I don't want to make it at all. It's a waste of time. So w with this brand, which is sort of a colorful dive watch, uh, we have had a really a nice little following for it. People, just yesterday, a guy sends me an email. I just bought my fourth. I love this is my favorite one yet. I love all the colors. It's fantastic. I'm telling all my friends. Thank you very much. So that's that brand. And then, but I was starting to yearn to get back to my lane. That's what I'm referring to, this tritium category. You know, along the way, I also thought to myself, hey, I never really gave back. Maybe I should do something to give back. And I, there's not a lot of things that, that I know how to do, but I can make a watch. So I uh, identified two causes I believed in. One of them is empowerment of women. Again, I got a son and a daughter. Why should my daughter be at a disadvantage to my son when it comes to pay and, and things of this sort? So I thought, why don't we create a watch? And we, the name of that is Baya. Uh, Baya was the Greek goddess of raw power and energy, Nike's sister. By the way, Nike was also a woman. A lot of people don't realize that. Uh, kids of Zeus. 
And we created this brand and it's an inexpensive brand, but it's made nicely. Uh, but the purpose of that was to give back up to 20% of the proceeds to organizations that were supporting empowerment of women. It just seemed like something I could get behind. And then as I, as I was seeing what was happening with the cannabis movement, um, and in particular, medicinal cannabis, I was reading about it and reading that the two of the biggest groups that were getting relief from cannabis were seniors and veterans. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, if we can't support seniors and veterans, who are we supporting? Uh, so I went, I know one of the guys that started 420 back in 1971. In fact, he printed some Luminox catalogs for me. He's in the printing business. And I just said to him, hey, the stigma's kind of gone. Maybe now's the time. Let's create a little brand. We'll call it 420 Waldos. It's got the little story of you five guys that started 420 back in 1971. And the purpose of that was to donate up to 20% of the proceeds to both Normal and the Drug Policy Alliance for, to try and affect change in the federal laws because right now it's the Wild West and it's a difficult business to run. So it just seemed like, again, I was supporting a, a cause that makes sense to me. But all the while, this stuff was kind of a placeholder. I just wanted more and more to be back doing what, what I did and to do it better. And so that's kind of what, that's the essence of what our new ProTech brand is, is to make a superior product that's made the right way in every way, the way I would want it. So, so I have no partners telling me, no, you got to do this or we want to do that because it's cheaper or we want to save money here. None of that. It's let's do this the right way. And, and that's basically the advent of the new ProTech brand that begins shipping next month. Oh, so the ProTech watches haven't started shipping yet? No, they start in the uh, in, end of July. Now, let's talk more about your lane. You said that you wanted to return to your lane you did these little side projects. And I want to mention that it's very interesting that all of these watches weren't about, they didn't start with the design. You weren't like, I have this look I want to do. They began with an audience. They began with a group of people who care about something. And you said they need a watch that um, helps identify them as part of a community, right? Because especially as men, we don't have a lot of things that we can wear that help identify us as being part of a group or community tribe, Right. You know, maybe with what maybe our clothing, maybe we can have a T-shirt with a band on it. But a watch can act as a very precise way of identifying tribalism, especially if you know what you're looking at. You know, so sometimes you want to be part of a very large tribe like Rolex wears, and sometimes you want to be part of a very niche tribe like you know one of your uh, Waldo 420 watches, right? Well, it's funny you mentioned you mentioned the significance of a watch that way. Can I can I regale you with a little anecdote about my son? Please. All right. So when he was graduated eighth grade, I gave him a nice review Toman watch as a, as a gift for graduating eighth grade. And he wore it for special occasions. Of course, he had Luminance watches because they were laying around the house. He wear this, wear that. I noticed sometime around 11th grade, he stopped wearing a watch. And I just innocently asked him, I noticed you're not wearing a watch anymore. He said, Dad, I don't need it. I got my cell phone. So, you know, I don't push because if you push, a kid pushes back. So, so be it. And then somewhere near the end of his junior year of college, I see he's occasionally wearing a watch. He gets into the workforce after college, and he's wearing a watch every day. So then I said to him, hey, Michael, I thought you didn't really need a watch. He goes, I don't need it, Dad. But, you know, for a guy, a watch says a little bit of something about who you are. And I've always believed that. And I believe that guys have far fewer ways to express themselves than women. You know, the women have the handbags, the shoes, the nail fashions, the hair fashions, all kinds of ways to say this is me. But, you know, for, for a while, guys had the writing instrument category, but that category sort of disappeared a little bit. But the one that remains as a means of saying this is me is watches. And that's why I was never really worried with the advent of the smartwatch and Apple Watch. Did it have an impact on analog watches? You bet it did. You sell 5.7 million watches in a period of 18 months, become the biggest watch company in the world. You know, that's significant, or second biggest in the world. That's significant. But I really felt that over time, the basic analog watch would still exist because there are all kinds of ways to make an analog watch and to design and create one. But a guy generally will wear one that says, this is me. And you know, that was part of the success of Luminox, and we expected to be part of the success of what we do here with ProTech, is that, you know, that's 
the the core message there is it it, it it's a watch that's created for you know uh, the adventurous guy, the outdoorsman, the, uh, you know certainly military tactical first responders, uh, uh, all of that as well, law enforcement, but but it also just says you know I'm kind of a, even if you're not. Even if you're a desk person, in your mind, you might like to envision yourself as an adventurous person. And these type of watches express that you are. Well, we have this interesting relationship with costumes in our culture. And when we talk about costumes, I think most people think of a, um, you know, an, a, a fake outfit or an outfit that doesn't represent what you actually do that you put on for fun. And we don't really talk too much about it outside of being a kid or sort of in a playful party mode. But there's this notion that we put things on and it changes our personality, right? When we're wearing workout clothing, for example, we look and feel and act very differently than we wear a suit. And we don't necessarily always talk about the psychological effect that what we're wearing or holding has on us. And watches, by virtue of the visual signals they send to both ourselves and the people that see them on us can, by definition of this concept, change our mood. So if we're wearing a sport watch, we might, you know, manifest some type of personality trait. If we're wearing sort of more of a dress watch, we might get into another mood. But it's, we should not discount what uh, looking at a watch makes you feel. Sometimes you just want to see something beautiful and that makes you happy. Sometimes you want to be reminded of your values. Sometimes you want to be reminded about where you came from or your history. But this is such an important part of, uh, of buying watches. And I think a crucial component is that first people actually have to identify those feelings with that watch. And that's where all the marketing comes in. And that's why I continue to push for marketing so heavily and why I admire a lot of the things you do, Barry. Because if you don't first create that experience where the consumer identifies those set of emotions with the product, then why would they ever buy it to feel that way? Yeah. Okay. And, and I really think it's even more, most important is how it how it makes you feel more so than how someone else might perceive you. Well, I mean, look, there are people that are very image conscious and let's, I mean, all the Rolex buyers out there, bless them, but they're buying the watch for someone else, not for themselves all the time. Let's be honest. <laughs> that, that could be true. Certainly for some. Okay. So let's go back to ProCheck right now, uh, ProTech, and let's, let's discuss what the designs are. Uh, talk about what their what the purpose is, price points. Like explain, like pitch the brand to someone who has now heard about you but doesn't know about this product. Okay, I'm happy to do that. So the, the concept here and and the name kind of defines what we're doing. So pro is that we're our, let's call it the center of our bullseye that we're aiming at. Are these professionals I've defined? First responders, law enforcement, military, SWAT, tactical, these type of people. Tech represents the illumination technology. So that's about loom. But the in an interesting little play on words, that target market is generally those that protect us, are those that protect us, so I guess would be better English, um, better grammar. And so, so that's the center of the bullseye. But by the same token, I'm fully cognizant that it's the rest of that target that counts. And this goes right back to the discussion we just had. You could have a person who just has an office job, but the very fact that this is aimed at that person and, and, and will be worn by a number of these people lends a certain comfort to the regular guy to say, hey, I may not even, I may not be that guy, but if I put that watch on, I'll feel good. And, and so that's kind of the essence of what this brand is about. Now I figured it out. Now I figured it out. And honestly, because I was looking at it, trying to identify what you're going for. But now when you're trying to sort of say protection, I see shields, I see armor, I see sort of modern defensive capability. You know, a lot of men uh, like the idea of being a protector. And if you connect that mentality with this, that protectors wear this, and if you want to feel like a protector, you can wear it too. No one is really advancing that because most of it is sort of aggressor, right? The aggressor wears this watch. It's the military watch. It's the shooting watch. It's the whatever watch. And, and that's a, there's a market for that as well. But the more protection side of it is still as manly, but a lot more politically, you know, correct. Yeah, we got, we got, uh, 
we got pretty fortunate here, Ariel, with a, a recent uh, affiliation, if you will. We have three series in the, I have seven series design. We have three series in the launch collection. There'll be others that will come and we'll add them bit by bit. Should I describe the series? Look, I mean, I think you should, you should explain to the degree that if someone goes to your website and sees it, you might provide some anecdote that'll help unlock, you know, what are they looking at? Why did you design this? What is this meant for? Happy to do so. So the core, the first series is a carbon composite watch because, you know, that was the, the background of a lion, the lion's share of what I did. I mean, I mentioned that color mark collection that was uh, a carbon composite case. But what we've done is, first of all, the design language is that facets that I was telling you about. So there's a lot of cuts and angles to make it look a little different, a little unique. Uh, and I, I, at first I wasn't sure and I've fallen in love with the design. And this series is made of a 30% carbon case. So we used a higher percentage of carbon than I'd used in the past. And again, remember I said no compromises. So here we're using a sapphire crystal with AR coatings. We're using screw crowns, of course, and screw case backs, 300 meters, not 200 meters, uh, genuine rubber straps. And this, this piece uh, is probably going to be our, our best sellers. This was uh, supplied to for evaluation uh, to the United States Marines, and we are extremely proud that they have uh, designated us an official watch of the United States Marine Corps. So that you want to talk about a protector, those are protectors, and and we're very very proud to have this affiliation because again we live in this day and age where some kind of story, some kind of hook. I talk, we talked about outlook is important. They have to look at it and like it. And I think we do fine just by how it looks because I, I do think they're handsome timepieces. But having the hook of saying that we have this affiliation is helps to get Carl Consumer to say, hey, what's that? Let me take a look at it. Then, of course, it's the outlook. But being able to talk about that will bring far more eyes to what we're doing, which hopefully will translate into some sales. The second series we're doing is a steel dive watch. Uh, and here it's going more along the lines in the direction of kind of a Tag Heuer type timepiece, but you know, with our design. Um, again, no compromises, uh, all the quality features. And here we're using a waterproof leather, which is interesting. You can take the rubber from the carbon case and put it on it, but we're using, oh, that's another thing. The rubber straps on the carbon, we didn't just mold the rubber straps, we molded steel tubes into the straps so that the spring pin goes through it and adds to the strength of how it is affixed to the watch. Uh, but then again, then we're using the waterproof leather on the steel dive piece, which most leather, you know, as you well know, you put leather starts a little stiff, you break it in, you put it in water, it's going to get brittle and it's going to crack usually where the buckle hits it. These these straps are treated so that they start soft, they get softer. You put your hand, you know, if you're in water, it'll mold to your wrist and it doesn't crack. So it's it's kind of a nice thing in that it can look, I mean, you could wear some of these with black tie, but yet it's a serious dive watch, 200 meters. And then the third one we wanted to do, keeping in that discussion of military lineage and history is a field watch. And here we did it in titanium. Uh, it's super featherweight. You don't even know you have it on. And in this case, it has, uh, once again, the waterproof leather straps on it for that same reason that it's a good outdoorsman's piece. Um, now, I made a decision here. And again, what did I say to you? I wanted no compromises, no excuses, make it the way I want it. So I made the decision here to use citizens' movements and to not use Swiss courts. Um, I have nothing against Swiss courts, nothing at all, nothing against, nothing but reverence for the Swiss. But uh, in my history of all these years I've been doing this, I've found that citizens' Miyota movement is virtually bulletproof. We never have a defect. We use it on Hawaiian Lifeguard Association watches. Uh, we use it on Santo. And we never have a movement issue. Something else might occur, but it's never that. And so I said, why, why will I, and I, I don't mean to offend anyone that's in the Swiss watch industry, but why will I fall prey to the line of thinking that says it has to be Swiss made when I don't think Swiss made means much until you get up above a couple thousand bucks? Because 
the stuff that's say 300 to a thousand, uh, the components are being sourced in Asia. They're brought to Switzerland. The Swiss human beings assemble it, uh, and they put a Swiss movement in it, and they say it's you know Swiss made. But for me, with the results we've had with citizens the auto movement, I'm more comfortable with it. So I said, look, I've never had issues. I want to use that, and and that's what we're doing. I, I you know. The, the, the Japanese are very, very much like the Swiss, you know, uh, quality right. for them. And, and I would I would say the Japanese are the Swiss of Asia. In fact. <laughs> well, uh, we're actually just about out of time. So, Barry, thank you so much for describing um, the new ProTech brand, which, you know, basically should be available by the time you, you listen to this episode of the show. Um, I think what resonates with me is how the way you talk about it is building a tool. You're interested in the durability you're interested in what it does, you're interested in the comfort and the longevity. And for me, this is what I want the people making my watches talking about, right? I don't want them talking about cost cutting. I don't want them talking about market relevance. Barry makes cool tool watches. And if you agree with his taste, then I think he'll be pretty happy with a lot of his products. So I'm looking forward to checking these watches out. Um, they come in at a really reasonable value. And of course, it's, this is just the beginning. So if this is sort of the new journey for you, knowing how deeply you care about it, I think that you know it's it's definitely worth paying attention. And thank you for sharing your, your stories and your luxury and wisdom from your... Um, your, your time in the watch industry. Um, just uh, could I provide the uh, website at least so people can take a peek? You know what? You're 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 ahead of me. I was about to say the exact same thing. Just tell everyone where they can find the watches. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, it would be at protechwatch.com and protech is P-R-O-T-E-K, just to be clear. And uh, they'll still get a feeling of the brand's essence there. And Ariel, I thank you so much for taking the time to uh, introduce this to your consumers and tell tell my story, but this brand story. Very much appreciate it. Absolutely, Barry. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Superlative Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com.